God credited the sins of believers to the servant and punished him in their place. And then he takes the righteousness of his servant and he credits that to those he represented. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom concludes his current series in Exodus chapters 33 and 34, titled God's Sermon on His Name. We find in the scripture passage an exclusive event that happened on Mount Sinai. God revealed himself to Moses. God made known certain attributes that brought attention to his unique character. This interaction shows that the only reasonable response to a glimpse of God at his self-revelation is to praise and worship him. Does the same apply in your life today, friend? Well, it certainly should. Moses' response to God provides a pattern for how we as Christians should respond to a glimpse of the glory of God in and through His Word. Let's join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. Now, when the Bible says God is just, it means two things. First of all, it means that as the perfect lawgiver, He has given us His law. And secondly, it means that as the perfect judge, He measures us, each one of us, against that law and gives us what we deserve. He is just. Now, there's a massive problem with the justice of God. We, we want God in one sense to be just, just not just with us. Because God is just, understand this, not one sin escapes God's notice. Have you ever thought about this? Let this drill into your soul because this is the testimony of Scripture. Not a single sin committed on this planet escapes the notice of God. God knows every sinful act, even the one we do our best to hide. Psalm 90 verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the blazing light of your presence. Nothing, nothing is hidden to God. God knows every sinful habit. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. The Hebrew word for paths is a reference to a person's lifestyle, to their patterns of behavior, to their habits. God knows every sinful word. Matthew 12, verse 36, every careless word, singular, that people speak, Jesus says, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment, for every single careless or sinful word. But most unsettling of all, I think, is that God knows our every thought and motive. See, we can look pretty good to everybody else. Other people may look at us and think of us a way that's totally different than the way God knows us. But here's the troubling reality. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How can it do that? There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but 
all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Think about this with me for a moment. From the day you were born, God has witnessed every single time you have sinned. He has heard every sinful or careless word that has ever left your mouth. He fully knows every sinful thought, such as lust or anger or bitterness or jealousy that you have ever entertained. And in the mind of God, in the perfect, omniscient mind of God, there is a perfect record of every single sin every single sinner has ever committed. In fact, in Revelation 20, it's described as the books in heaven being open. That is the divine record of the deeds of men and women. If you've not repented and believed in Christ, that same passage, Revelation 20, says that you will stand before what John the Apostle calls the great white throne of judgment. And in that judgment, the books will be open. That is figurative of the divine omniscience, the all-knowing mind of God that has captured every single sinful thought and word and action. And God will use that complete record to judge you when you stand before Him. Not one single sin will go unpunished. God will punish every single violation of His righteous law. That's what it means when it says, yet He will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 23.7 says, I will not acquit the guilty. Ecclesiastes 12.14, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Jeremiah 32.19, the Lord's eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And it's expressed here in verse 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God says that his justice, which is, which is his very nature, demands that he punish every single sin without exception. It's coming. There was a famous Southern Baptist evangelist who preached a message, a famous message with the title, Payday Someday. Payday Someday. Now, what I've said so far might lead some people, maybe even you, to think, wow, that really sounds unloving. How could a loving God respond to sin and sinners like that? You don't really believe that God is unloving to be just. And let me, let me explain why you don't really believe that. What if I told you that down in at Tarrant County, down at the courthouse in Tarrant County, there was a human judge who had a reputation for being so loving that every criminal who appeared in his court, he forgave them and dismiss their case and let them go. Every murderer, every rapist, every child abuser, every person who committed a horrible act of crime, that judge, because he was so loving, just forgave them and let them go. What would you say? Now, be honest with yourself. You would not say, oh, that's so wonderful. That judge is just so loving. 
No, there is within you the residual image of God which says that's not loving, that's a perversion of justice. How much more, God says, would that be true if I did the same thing? You see, if God isn't just, then he's not God. Justice is the foundation of his throne. That means somebody's going to pay for every sin you have ever committed, every single one of them. It will either be you for eternity or it'll be Jesus Christ, the one whom God has appointed to be able to stand in your place. But somebody is going to pay for every single sin ever committed on this planet. The justice of God demands it. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's a second expression of God's justice in verse 7 there in Exodus 34. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, this passage is often grossly misunderstood. First of all, let's look at the word visiting. The Hebrew word means to carefully investigate and respond based on what you find. That's what it means to visit. Sometimes it's positive. God God visits His people and finds them in desperate physical condition, and He does them good. He he gives them food. For example, Ruth chapter 1 talks about that. God visited His people and gave them food. But most of the time, it's used in this sort of context. God carefully investigates and responds based on what He finds. So don't misunderstand. Listen carefully. God never punishes children for the sins of their fathers. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, "'Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin.'" That's the law of God. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18 lays out this principle for an entire chapter. We won't look at all of it, but let me just call your attention to the first four verses. Ezekiel 18, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel the prophet, saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes. In other words, the fathers sinned, but the children's teeth are set on edge. The children face the bitterness of the sin of the fathers. They are the ones who get the penalty. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. God says it is a basic principle of my justice to deal with each person based on their own choices. Now, keep your finger there. We're going to come back to this chapter in just a moment. That means that back in Exodus 34, verse 7, when it says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, it doesn't mean punishing the children for the father's sins. Instead, it's talking about the powerful influence of sin. If the fathers hate God, then often the children hate Him through the influence of their parents. 
And if God visits or if God investigates and finds that to be true, then he will judge and punish the children, not for the parents' sin, but for their own sin. But notice that by God's grace, this pattern of influence, it doesn't extend to the thousandth generation like it does with his steadfast love. Rather, it extends at the most to the fourth generation. And listen carefully. By God's grace, the pattern can be and often is broken. Look again at Exodus 18 and verse 21. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, that's repentance. And how do you show that repentance? By observing all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. Where there is repentance and, and faith in God, that person enjoys life. He shall not die. I think the reference here is both to not being put to death physically in Israel, but also to he will not die permanently spiritually. He will not face all that's involved in eternal death. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should, here it is, turn from his ways, repent, and live. It happens. You see, this pattern can be broken. Many of you in this room are a testimony to the fact that this pattern can be broken. Maybe you're a first-generation Christian. You're from the home of those who did not love God, who did not obey His commands, and God simply reached down into that and snatched you to Himself from a long line of sinners, just like He did with Rahab in the Old Testament and with, with Ruth and with Naaman the leper and with Nebuchadnezzar. Folks, don't ever lose hope. In God's great grace, this pattern of influence can be broken. Now go back to Exodus, and I want you to see that both groups in verse 7 are guilty of iniquity, but God forgives one group and He punishes the other. So what determines how you get into the first group? Well, there are two answers to that question. First of all, there's the answer from God's perspective. Go back to chapter 33, verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, one answer to how you get into the first group, it, from God's perspective, it's because He in sovereign grace determines to show grace. God says, the exercise of my attributes that I'm going to proclaim to you, Moses, depends entirely on my own will. My decision to act according to these virtues is solely at my discretion. Or if I could put it this way, God says, I will be gracious if it pleases me, when it pleases me, for reasons that please me, and to whom it pleases me. In Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes this very verse in reference to election. But there's a second answer to this question of how you get into that first group that God forgives sins, and this is the one you need to worry about if this is true of you. It's the answer from our perspective. There are a lot of places I could turn, but I love the way Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Here's, here's how you get into group one if you're, if you're not there, if you've not been forgiven. Seek the Lord while He may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. In other words, repent, turn from your rebellion, turn from your sin, and let him return to the Lord. There's faith. Repent and believe, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's how you get into group one. Call upon him, seek him, repent and believe, and he will abundantly pardon. Now, I want you to look again at verse 7, because in verse 7 is the great enigma of the Old Testament. Do you see it? Look at the first half of the verse. God leaves some of the guilty unpunished and forgives their iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then he says, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It's like, wait a minute. How can both of those statements be true? The solution to this great enigma is announced in the Old Testament. You see, we learn in Isaiah, I want you to turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 53, we learn some 700 years before Christ exactly how this was going to happen, how this enigma could be answered. God would appoint a special servant who would represent his people, and God would impute or credit to that servant the sins of believers, and he would punish the servant in their place. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And notice it's plural. Our iniquities, our our individual sins, the chastening for our well-being or our shalom fell upon him, and by his scourging we are spiritually healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the guilt, the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8, notice the second half of the verse. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He died. Why? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Even though verse 9 says he himself was perfectly morally pure. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, verse 10, putting him to grief. And here's the key. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. In other words, he would be the sacrifice bearing the sins of his people. Verse 11 says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. You see, God credited the sins of believers to the servant and punished him in their place. And then, verse 11 says, he takes the righteousness of his servant and he credits that to those he represented. That's the promise made in the Old Testament. Now, don't forget who was speaking with Moses back in Exodus 34. It's the eternal Son of God. It's the second member of the Trinity, and it was he who would become the special servant. In other words, he is the solution to the great enigma of the Old Testament. The riddle of the Old Testament is answered in a person, how God could both forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet not leave a single sin unpunished. 
It's because of Christ. Turn over to John chapter 1. You're familiar with this passage. The eternal word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Notice this next expression, full, he was full of grace and truth. You know where that comes from? Exodus 34, 7. He was full of steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. And look down at verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but steadfast love and faithfulness were realized through Jesus Christ. He's the one who made it possible for God to express those things to us. How? Well, he said it himself, didn't he? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I've come to save by giving my life as a ransom in the place of many. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins, plural, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. So folks, God is holy, he's great, he's good, and he's just. And that leads very briefly to the obvious response, the exaltation of God's person. We see it in verses 8 and 9 of our text. First of all, there's humility and submission. Verse 8 says, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth. That is his humility before God, and it shows his submissiveness to God. And worship, and he worshiped God. And prayer, verse 9, he said, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray. You see, Moses used what he had just learned about the character of God to pray to God, to argue with God. He asked God for the continued presence of of God with them. Let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. He, he asked God for the forgiveness of sin, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and for the Lord's complete acceptance, and take us as your own possession. How could he ask those things? On the basis of what he had just learned about God. Listen, a just and holy God has witnessed every sin you have ever committed. He has a perfect record in his divine mind And he is bound by his unchanging character to punish every single sin without exception. But here's the good news. That offended God. For all of those who will believe in his son, he took the pages of that record that represent every single sin you've ever committed, and he tore it from the divine record, and Colossians 2 says he nailed it to the cross as the accusation against Christ, and Christ died on that cross to pay your debt. And for every single sin, because God is just, not one sin in the history of the universe will ever go unpunished. The unrepentant, if you, if you simply refuse to take God's offer of grace in Christ, then you will pay for your sin forever. But praise God, for us who are in Christ, all of our sins were paid in full. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of his series, God's Sermon on His Name. Tom will begin a new series on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, as a closing thought, how can every believer respond to God in a manner that pleases Him? You know, friend, if you've been with us through this series, then 
I would challenge you to respond to the greatness of our God and the goodness of our God, just as Moses did. Respond with humility and submission to him. Respond with true heart worship, worshiping him not only in truth, but in spirit. And then pray, come to him, especially confessing your sin and seeking forgiveness, knowing that this is the character of our God. And make sure that as you think about God, you think about him in the way that he has revealed himself. He said to Moses, my goodness is my glory. May his goodness shape and frame our mindset about our God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm-hmm.